I want to begin, though, by uh, discussing, talking about a phrase you may or may not have heard before. The more you know. The more you know. What began as an early 90s PSA on NBC, featuring famous actors uh, and TV personalities, and before you think that uh, that was a long time ago. You might not know these people. You do. Will Smith, uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston, uh, from celebrities from Friends and Fresh Prince and even the Evening News on NBC. And they were making confident, uh, anti-peer pressure, pro-education, anti-drug sort of statements. And before long, that... PSA campaign became a social phenomenon. And throughout the decades since, it has only snowballed. These PSAs were known for their rather straightforward social message, a very individualistic, moralistic, uh, knowledge-empowering sort of statement and sort of message. The more you know, the better off you are. Perhaps the best part of these ads was the ending. A little jingle in the words in 1989 technology in 3D, the more you know, with a yellow star and a rainbow trail behind it. You know it. It's the JIF. Uh, the more you know was popularized by the likes of Conan O'Brien in the 90s and then Scrubs and then The Office itself. Uh, often a parody for self-obvious or weirdly specific factoids, the more you know. And according to dictionary.com, the more you know, in February 2015, uh, skyrocketed in interest because Katy Perry's Super Bowl halftime show inadvertently mimicked the shooting star effect. Today, it's a gif, the kind you send to your friend uh, tongue-in-cheek when they were today years old when they found out something you and everybody else in the world has known forever. However you choose to use the more you know, whether it's a shooting star gif or the hashtag, uh, the humor built into this kind of statement is built on a fundamental implication. You see, the more you know the better off you are, whatever way that is. It has sort of a knowledge is power vibe to it. You see, the more you know, the better your photography will be. The more you know, your, the better your culinary creations will turn out. The more you know, the better you can take advantage of the algorithm to get more life. <coughs> the more you know, the easier the application process for med school will be. Here, let me help you. The more you know, the faster you'll be able to climb the corporate ladder, and the more you know, the more impact you will have in the world. The mission statement of UCLA is built on this premise that the more you know, the better the world will be. Listen to UCLA's mission statement. It's not something you hear every day, even though you go here. UCLA's primary purpose as a public research university is the creation Dissemination, preservation, and application of knowledge for the betterment of our global society. And so, not just because of this statement, but because of this statement, your very existence, even here at UCLA, is predicated on this very idea. You, hopefully, are here to learn. You're here to gain knowledge in your field of study, you're here to gain knowledge and change the world. Uh, the statistics are staggering on the percentage of college students who truly believe they will change the world in the next five years. Maybe you will. In a world of change and progress, opportunities and successes, the more you know, the better off you'll be. Just plain and simple, the way our world works. It's the way our Western value system operates, to be honest. It is, whether you admit it or not, 
what drives you to do what you do on all kinds of levels, uh, macro and micro. Tonight in our passage, James goes for the jugular on this concept. You see, James gives us, instead of this world's rat racy, personally driven, knowledge-based system, a taste of, instead, God's economy, God's value system. God's value system is built on wisdom. It's built not just on knowledge, not just on what you know, but on the wisdom of God lived out in real life and in community. So let's look at James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. James 3, 13 to 18. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, that you have said, if any of us lacks wisdom, let him ask of you. And so we ask, God, because we need your wisdom. Uh, we come to your word tonight, hearts eager to understand how we can pursue your wisdom and not the world's wisdom. So, Spirit, illumine our minds, we ask. And it's by your Spirit's power that we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue at the, in our look at the book of James, uh, a faith lived out, we'll see tonight that those with true faith cast off worldly wisdom and pursue godly wisdom. Those with true faith cast off worldly wisdom, and then pursue godly wisdom. We'll look at this in three headings, the first of which is found in verses 13 and 14, and that's how wisdom works. How wisdom works. These first two verses, James shows us what wisdom looks like, how we can know it when we see it. It's how wisdom works. In chapter 2, we saw that there were two kinds of faith, two types of faith. True and living faith that is justified, demonstrated by its works, and then dead and useless faith that says it believes, and yet it has no works to back it up. Well, here in our passage tonight, James presents a very similar idea as we examine not faith, but wisdom. There are, in James's view, two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom from above, which is godly wisdom, manifested in someone's life a certain way. And then secondly, there is wisdom from below, or earthly wisdom, which is man's wisdom, rooted in man's intellect. And it's also manifested in someone's life, but as we'll see, manifested in a very different way from godly wisdom. And so there are two kinds of wisdom, each manifesting themselves in the lives of those who possess each of them. This, in very simple form, is the concept of how wisdom works. It, wisdom is not some secret thing tucked away in your brain, inside of you, and no one can tell. Wisdom shows itself, and each of those two types of wisdom show themselves in different ways. 
here in verses 13 and 14, we can see how each of these wisdoms work, how we can know in our pursuit of wisdom if we have God's wisdom or if we have earthly wisdom or some mixture of the two. James begins by polling the crowd in verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Show yourself. Raise your hand, he almost says. It's a challenge. Who is wise and understanding among you? This word wise, literally skillful or clever, experienced, knowledgeable, but in skill. And then the word understanding, really kind of a synonym. Uh, literally, to be expert or learned, learned if you please. This idea of wisdom, as we'll unpack it throughout our time tonight, is the idea of knowledge actually lived out. Not just more understanding piled up in your brain, uh, not just facts and numbers and concepts, but knowledge about God and about God's truth that then translates over into skilled living. It's the how-to about life in God's world found in wisdom literature, especially the Proverbs, referred to in the Proverbs often as understanding or instruction or advice. And it certainly is tied to knowledge, but it's not just knowledge, it's knowledge applied. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, it is not a body of information so much as an understanding, a developed instinct that enables us to plot a path through life so that we can be faithful to God, live in, live in accordance with his word, and be fruitful in his service. It's not a body of information, but a developed instinct was the means. And so James asks, who is what? Who is understanding among you? And I think our default answer at GOC can be the older people, the gray-haired people in the room. At least the upperclassmen. I don't think they have gray hair yet, but they're older and they're wiser. To be wise, you have to be old, right? By the grace of God, that's very true in our ministry. We have gray hairs in the room, and they are all the wiser. We benefit from that. But I think that's our default answer. That automatically, if you get older, you get wiser. I think other default answers that we have as a ministry are that there's the one usually guy who likes to show everyone that he reads more books than everybody else. And so he must be wiser. Or at least he wants everyone to think so. I think another default answer for us is that the people who everyone thinks should be a small group leader next year or that they should probably eventually go to seminary, that person's wiser. It's all about reputation in some way. Or the person who's the Bible answer man in your class. Those who know a lot about theology and, you know, go to the systematic theology class, but probably should be the one teaching it. On a basic level, we think that smart or knowledgeable is wise. That to be South Campus is smart, therefore probably some kind of wise. And if your major has an acronym that makes three or even four letters, you're even wiser. In short, we equate knowledge with true wisdom. We equate an outward appearance of knowledge, whether it's gray, he gray hair or books or a PhD in pursuit. We confuse that knowledge or appearance of with true wisdom. We see it on such a superficial level. Now, don't get me wrong, all of these things that I mentioned could be really good things, especially the gray hair part. But they're not, for James here, the measure of true wisdom. You see, the way for the wise to raise their hands, to show themselves, the way that true wisdom vindicates itself, you could say, 
is here in the latter half of verse 13. Look there again. By his, what? Good conduct. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This kind of truly wise person shows their wisdom by their good conduct, their good behavior, their godly living. This word good, commonly used in the New Testament, has the connotation of beauty or appeal. And so this is attractive actions. It's a gospel-adorning life. One commentator says it this way, when loving kindness flows from a renewed heart, it creates the beautiful lifestyle James has in mind. It's transformed life, so to speak. You see, those who are truly wise, with the kind of wisdom that comes from above, from God, these people don't just know about God, they know and love God in such a way that it flows from their brains to their hearts and affects their outlook, their emotions, their desires, and in their entire lives. You see, the wise don't just know wise person stuff. They actually live it out, and it shows. If you are wise, you don't just know about God on an intellectual, theological level. You know and you love and you honor and you obey him also. If you are wise, you don't just know that God is holy. You live in a pursuit of purity and holiness on a daily level, and it shows. If you are truly wise in God's eyes, you don't just know that God is love intellectually. You actually love and honor and forgive your brother or sister in Christ, even when it's difficult. If you are truly wise, you don't just know that God is gracious. You actually live in light of that grace as you fight uncertainty and sin and doubt, and you extend that same grace to other people. If you are truly wise, you will show it in your good conduct, in your beautiful lifestyle, in your gospel-adorning life. See, if you have the wisdom of God, you don't just stop at chapter and verse. Although you use chapter and verse. You show godly wisdom by the way you live. Consider, too, what James is saying here. You see, this good conduct, it's befitting of wisdom, is not just this linear goody-two-shoes kind of thing. This isn't the better you act, the more wise you are. This is good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. It's done in humility. Some translations have the word gentleness there. I'm not sure that really captures it, at least the way that we understand the word gentleness. But it's this idea of humility, of meekness. This is such needed nuance for us, isn't it? See, if we live rightly, if we live in this sort of good conduct, this beautiful lifestyle, it is so easy to live rightly but self-righteously. Especially when we don't struggle with the same things everyone else does. It's so easy to live rightly in our own eyes. But look down on other people who seem more worldly than us. It's so easy to live rightly to a rubric. And they criticize other people who don't live up to your standard. James is saying those who are wise will simply into the meekness live out the wisdom they have. They don't need to say it. They don't need to forcibly show everyone. They just live out godly wisdom. Your wisdom will show in your humble deeds of faith. In fact, look at verse 14. 
This is what the other kind of wisdom, earthly wisdom, lives itself out like. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. You see, if instead of good deeds done in humility, your heart is full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, James says here to you, do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't boast as if you have wisdom, because you don't have true wisdom, if that's in your heart. At least not the kind of wisdom that God gives. And James labels all of this false to the truth. Because true wisdom does good deeds in humility. But this person instead has selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. This bit of jealousy is literally harsh zeal. It's a biting, intense sort of envy of what other people have, whether it be possessions or position or power. You see, while others actually live out their faith humbly, you inside rage with bitter jealousy. You criticize, you judge, and you nitpick. And you, in your heart, think you know your ways better. This kind of earthly wisdom is driven also by selfish ambition. This is a fatal attraction to status and reputation, a desire to be known by people for how good you think you look and how wise you think you are. This is, again, out of a desire to position yourself for personal gain or popularity. When I think of this kind of person, I think of immediately pick up basketball. Some of you bros know about this. Some of you ladies too, ballers. Pick up basketball. You get to the park, Veteran Park, in the era of C-19. And you get to Veteran Park and you're just warming up. Get ready for the first game. You have nine, so you gotta wait for another person. Same friends, always late. And you're still warming up, and you're shooting, you know, air balls from half court. Curry, Kobe, you know that kind of thing. And you're just trying to like warm up, but there's always that one dude. Like you already know what I'm gonna say. There's always that one dude who, when you're just trying to warm up, is like boxing you out. And you're like, dude, why are you boxing me out? You're sweaty already. Like, what is going on? Uh, this person wants to be the MVP of Veteran Park. Like, what? What is that? But that's what this earthly wisdom looks like. Everyone else is chilling, living life to the glory of God. And this person just wants to box out. This sort of uh, braggy, ball-hoggy, jealous, self-interested sort of person. And even with ministry opportunities God has given, you become this jealous, uh, selfishly ambitious per person, eager to position yourself in front of other people. But that's how wisdom works. It shows itself. It shows itself in both of these kinds of wisdom. Uh, both wisdom from above and wisdom from below. They show themselves to be what they are. You see, their outward manifestations, the way that they show themselves in our lives, whether good and humble conduct or jealous, selfish ambition, both ways are exhibits of what kind of wisdom resides on the inside. So let's take a closer look at these two kinds of wisdom where they come from, and how you grow in true and godly wisdom. But before we get there, we need to look first at earthly wisdom. You see, you need to know as you live in a world, in a university campus, steeped in worldly wisdom and its pursuit, you need to know what you're up against. You need to be able to discern what earthly wisdom looks like, so you know how to cast it off, how to avoid it. So let's call this second heading, Earthly Wisdom and Its Fruits. 
earthly wisdom and its fruits. Look at verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We see here, very simply, a threefold description of this kind of wisdom that shows itself by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. First, we see here that it does not come down from above, it's not from God, but it is instead earthly. You see, the wisdom that we are seeing here does not find its source in God. The, the wisdom here is of this world, its source, and therefore its scope and its limitation is this planet. It comes from the mind of man, and sometimes even the best of the mind of man. And so at times, it can seem impressive, even productive, and timely, and positive. But by its very nature, it is inherently linked to this passing world. Temporal and tied to the unstable concerns of this earth anchored to the earthly economy instead of God's economy. This kind of wisdom is ignorant of the creator of the universe and his will, valuing only what creatures value, passions and pleasures and passing things, things far below God and far short of eternity. This wisdom is earthly. Secondly, James says this wisdom is unspiritual. But literally, some translations have soulish or natural. And James is saying that this wisdom is tied primarily to not only this earth, but human emotion and human reason. Often, what your first instinct is about what you should do in a tough situation. It's the human fight or flight, but in a divine sense. Sometimes it can be fleshly, carnal even. Its concerns are not only earthly, but of human concern, of concern of the human soul and passions and desires. 1 John 2.16 describes this. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. These things are not from the Father, but from the world. And so this earthly wisdom is unspiritual, it's natural, it's fleshly. Thirdly, we see this kind of wisdom is demonic. Now, James isn't saying here that there's actually a demonic presence in everyone who has worldly wisdom. But... He is saying that these earthly, fleshly interests that we've seen so far in this kind of wisdom do in fact serve the same interests as the demonic and the satanic in their aim, in their focus, in their goals. They're the same in intent and purpose. Now as we consider this earthly wisdom and its influence on our lives, this admittedly demonic is a description that may seem to us a little extreme at first. It makes us a little bit uneasy. But consider that like demonic interests, human wisdom is opposed to God's wisdom. All over scripture. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and see this. 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Go down to chapter 2, look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are 
folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That passage goes on to describe that for us who are redeemed, who are in Christ, that we have the mind of Christ. But human wisdom, in its very nature, is is opposite to the wisdom of God. In fact, the gospel is folly to those of the world. So human interests in their natural and fallen state are not all that much different from the demonic. The human wisdom in 1 Corinthians is diametrically opposed to God and His wisdom. Go back to James. Look at verse 16. We see here the fruit, the results of this kind of wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This is the 2022 Lakers theme verse. See what begins as just trying to get smarter? Knowledge. It's just a seminar or just a podcast that's a hobby. Just a loose association with that guy. Can very quickly become a full buy-in to the world system and all that it entails. And strife and disorder, uh, evil abounds. This is Romans 1, the opposition to God and the subsequent unraveling, uh, downward spiraling of this kind of system that is built on human wisdom. If we had time, we'd walk through Romans 1, but it begins with this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for idols. And then it ends with this, God giving those driven by worldly wisdom, those claiming to be wise, over to the passions of their flesh to all manner of unrighteousness and evil. First off, Kansas, there is a particular danger when this kind of earthly wisdom takes hold in the believer's life. This is a wisdom, earthly wisdom, that is completely opposed to the wisdom of God even at the most basic level, in the gospel. And so when the Christian is filled with and directed by this kind of earthly wisdom, there exists, even for the redeemed, the probable outcome we see here. Strife and evil, sin and disorder. Beware of earthly wisdom. Cast off earthly wisdom, this wisdom of mankind. In your time here in college, guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Lastly, in this text, we see heavenly wisdom and its fruits. Heavenly wisdom and its fruits. Here we see the nature of true and godly wisdom. Wisdom from above. And the contrast couldn't be clearer. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Here James characterizes the wisdom of God, the kind of wisdom we ought to seek, we ought to pursue, as opposed to the earthly, natural, demonic wisdom of man, this wisdom from above is a fountain of heavenly goodness. This is, in James's terms, wisdom from above. You see, the source of this wisdom is God himself. Uh, Remember, flip back even to chapter 1, verse 5. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. You see, the God who is the giver of all things good, from the new birth to newness of life in Christ, God is the source of all things, all good things, including this kind of wisdom, this kind of understanding. And this is the truth found in Proverbs 2.6. It's a verse we've looked at before this quarter. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. And so this kind of wisdom is overflowing with the goodness of God. It's a multiplier of virtue and godly character that we see in this verse. And that becomes evident in the life of the believer who pursues it. I wonder how many of you attempted uh, to cook something Italian recently. Maybe soup? Or that slightly fancier kind of pasta that doesn't come out of a jar? A sauce, at least. Something Italian. And you gather your ingredients, you go to Ralph's twice because you forgot something. What did you forget? It's a good chance you forgot the last thing on the list, and you actually don't think it was necessary. And you're still, still not sure if it was actually necessary. The last thing on that list was a bay leaf. Have you ever tried to Google bay leaf and understand? I'm supposed to take it out when I eat what I cooked, but it's necessary for some reason. And even Bon Appetit can't tell me why. Bay leaves, supposedly, bring out the flavors of all the other ingredients. It's the X factor of ingredients. Wisdom is that bay leaf. Indispensable flavor-inducing. It's an ingredient that brings the Christian life and Christian character together and melds the flavors and brings them all out. Notice as we look at each of the attributes in this verse that there's a similarity of these characteristics to the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, or also the Beatitudes in James's favorite compass, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not a direct copy pasta, but it is in some way a reflection of God and his very nature, because this is, after all, his wisdom. And in Galatians 5, it is the character of the work of his spirit. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it is the character of his followers. So we see a lot of similarities in these characteristics to other parts of our Bibles. First, James characterizes this wise person and this wisdom as pure. Very simple. It's holiness. It's blamelessness morally. In this list, it is the overarching quality of the person with this kind of wisdom. This is the character quality underlying the good conduct we saw earlier. And under this overall theme of purity, of holiness, uh, James seems to categorize the remaining seven characteristics, at least in the Greek, uh, both in a linguistic sort of way, but also thematically. So let's look at the first three together. They are peaceable and gentle, and ESV says open to reason. That these words are alliterated in the original. Peaceable, someone who seeks peace actively. Someone whose priority, as they look toward others, is to find peace. And that peace is rooted in the peace we have with God ourselves. Gentle, this is someone who is considerate, or kind, or courteous, or tolerant. It has a nuance there. Almost this idea of not insisting on every right or letter of the law. Uh, not legalistic, you could say, but instead gentle. 
and non-judgmental. Third here in this triplet is open to reason, a similar nuance to the last, but uh, more open. This is a compliance or an obedience, almost a submissiveness to other people. Uh, this is the idea of not insisting on your own rights or your own opinion. These first characteristics, these first three, are the exact opposite of the envious, selfish, ambitious person driven by worldly wisdom we saw earlier. Instead of being given only to his or her own opinion and entitlements, this person, for the sake of peace and purity with others, is peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. The next two characteristics are both modified by this phrase, full of. This person is filled with godly wisdom that is full of mercy. It's a familiar term to us by now as we've looked at James. It's this kindness or compassion demonstrated to those in need specifically. And we think of Jesus saying, blessed are the merciful. This person also is full of good fruits, a sort of umbrella term for any kind of actual outward demonstrations of goodness or righteousness toward other people. This is the idea that over and above and around mercy, this Christian is filled with good fruits. It's a cornucopia of blessings, so to speak, in this, people, in this person's life toward others. There's a harvest of righteous action toward other people. And finally, these last two characteristics are tied together, again, by alliteration in the original, and then they have similar endings in the, the way that the words are spelled. First of those two is impartial. And some translations uh, have the word unwavering, the connotation of uh, without doubt or faithful, uh, dependable. Uh, but I believe ESV and some of these other translations get it right in the sense that I think this is a rewind to chapter 2 in our discussion of partiality. You see, those with true faith, and now as we look at those who have godly wisdom, are free from partiality. They're impartial. They're not judgmental, not divisive, they don't practice favoritism. They, they instead pursue peace. And then finally, James characterizes wisdom as sincere. There is an integrity, a genuineness to this kind of wisdom. There is, literally, this word means no hypocrisy. Literally, without play acting, without being the hypocrite with the mask in the Greek theater. The person with this kind of wisdom, this kind of godly wisdom, grows and flourishes in all of these areas as they pursue the wisdom of God. I think so many times we think about the Christian life, we think about our own growth and our pursuit of godliness, and we think about the specific areas that we want to grow. And I can appreciate that. I like when people know where they need to grow and know where they want to grow. But it's so siloed out sometimes. It's so dialed in. You have the exact idea of where you think you need to grow. You see, a big implication of what James is telling us here is that we ought first to, and foundationally to, and fundamentally to, seek to grow simply in the wisdom of God. We ought to pursue the wisdom from above, and this sort of multiplying effect on our character will happen. A harvest of righteousness. Look at verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We see an even further effect that the fruits of this wisdom from above have. It's a whole harvest of righteousness that is sown. 
not just in your life, but in verse 18, in the lives of everyone around you. And you see, as opposed to the strife and the fighting and the evil and the competition that comes from selfish ambition and jealousy in earthly wisdom, godly wisdom yields righteousness and peace. And it's that pursuit of peace with others that will help you through trials. It's that pursuit of peace that will help you to resist temptation. It's that pursuit of peace that will help you when you're tempted to be partial. It's that pursuit of peace that will help you control your tongue. All of this, and I feel like we're in a spot where we have to say, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy. We have failed. We've pursued earthly wisdom. God, give us your wisdom instead. And so where do you start? Where do you start to pursue this kind of godly wisdom? Remember this verse, Proverbs 1, 7. Proverbs 1, 7. It's a short verse. I'm not going to read half of it because it's the half that counts for this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That word knowledge, which is counsel or advice or we like wisdom. It's this idea of knowledge but lived out in skill. Grace on campus, you must, if you want to pursue godly wisdom, you must fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. You must have a reverential awe, a love, a, a desire to obey God. In order to be in a place to obtain this kind of wisdom, you must Fear him and rightly see him and humble yourself before him and ask him, James 1, 5, for the wisdom that you lack. Friends, would you, along with me, cultivate a heart that is receptive, that is teachable to the wisdom of God, not wise to ourselves, but instead humble and reverential in our fear of the Lord. So that God would give us wisdom that would have a harvest of righteousness and have peace among us. The late and great J.I. Packer uh, thinks of wisdom and he describes wisdom uh, in this sort of picture. He, he talks about how wisdom is like going to uh, the British railway station. The kind that you need to figure out and you need to know how to take if you're going to visit uh, England. And he describes standing on the platform and seeing uh, trains come and go and signals and colors and people go to and from and uh, being a little bit confused about everything that's going on. I just want to get to such and such stop. There's a simplicity to being in British railway station. And he describes our understanding of wisdom as having the privilege to, instead of standing on the platform, to be able to go into what British people affectionately call the signal box room. The signal box room. Where you get to see everything that's happening in the entire British railway system. Packer says that our understanding, our thirst of wisdom can often bring us to this understanding that we're like the person in this signal box room that gets to see the entire map of the railway system and all the lights that light up when there's a train at a specific stop and which lights move faster and slower. And Packer says this, now, this mistake that is commonly made is to suppose that this is an illustration of what God does when he bestows wisdom. 
to suppose, in other words, that the gift of wisdom consists in a deepened insight into the meaning and purpose of events going on around us. An ability to see why God has done what he has done in a particular case and what he's going to do next. He goes on to say that people who think that this is what wisdom is imagine that if they walk closely enough with God on a daily level, that they'll be in God's signal box. They're going to understand everything that happens to them. And so these kinds of people, uh, us included, look at all of life and try to see God's fingerprints in everything. And I think we should. I think we should be aware of how God is working. But Packer explains wisdom this way. He says, wisdom is like learning how to drive. Having godly wisdom is like having the ability to drive. You see, you could get caught up in wondering why the road engineer made the road the way he did, why it wasn't just one lane wider. Or you could stop at a red light and think about the philosophy of electrons pulsing to make that light red or green or yellow. Only not electrons. You could get caught up in why this lady in front of you is still stopped at a green light. But none of that, even if you knew those answers, would be wisdom. You see, wisdom is like learning and knowing then how to drive the car. That you know how to pump the brakes. That you know how to respond to everything in front of you. Packer says this, to live wisely, you must be clear-eyed about people and life, seeing life as it is, and then responding with a mind dependent on the wisdom of God. GOC, would we in our prayers this week ask God for wisdom? that we would be able to navigate the trials and the joys and the temptations of life with a mind dependent on the wisdom of our God. My challenge to you as you approach this break is to read the book of Proverbs. Just take a chapter a day and read the book of Proverbs and let it be your prayer that God would give you his wisdom. You would grow in a, in a way that's not ordinary for someone your age. So you would be wise beyond your years by the time you finish college. And how and why? Not because of your own efforts or abilities, but because God promises to grant his wisdom freely and graciously to those who ask. Let's pray to the that. Father, we thank you for your word. In it, we find your wisdom. And we see our need for wisdom. So God, give us wisdom we ask. You're the God who promises to graciously and freely give. And so, Lord, we're here asking. Lord, would you grow our ministry in this uh, all-encompassing attribute? that we would be more like you and to know you and then to live that life of good conduct, a beautiful lifestyle that shows that we know you